This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Te Pāti Māori live streams from local marae don't usually attract much mainstream media interest, but the defection of Government Minister Mika Whaiteri this week was carried by every major media outlet after a late-night scoop sparked a media scramble. We look at how that unfolded, but first, it was an historic event that anointed a new head of state for us for the first time in 70 years. And it was also a made-for-media spectacle which many people all around the world wanted to watch. So how did our media handle the coronation of King Charles? Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Not in a wild, woohoo, I love the I love royalty sort of way, but in a, this is fun, this is a magnificent folly, this is, this is a good thing to do at this time when... When things are terrible and difficult, why not? That was News Talk ZB's Andrew Dickens, no major monarchist, as he said there, but like many in the media lately, he told his listeners last Monday he was looking forward to this weekend's coronation spectacle because it would be, well, spectacular. Um, what, what would I call it? You know, um, a sideshow from the drudgery of everyday life, a, a bit of fun. Well, sideshow is one way of putting it, but this was also a confirmation of a new head of state for us for the first time in 70 years and an opportunity to ponder our constitutional arrangements, republicanism and other stuff that many people said it was too soon to discuss when Queen Elizabeth died last year. But is that what New Zealand news media audiences actually want right now, or do they want a bit of fun? In a minute, we'll ask about that. But the media of the not-so-United Kingdom right now have also been debating the coronation because there, just like here, there's a fairly severe cost-of-living crisis going on in the background. It's not going to be cheap, according to Britain's Sun newspaper. Charles's coronation is expected to cost around, wait for it, 120 million euros. If it was to be comparable with the previous one, it would be something like 46 million quid. Uh, That's what it equates to now from 1953 costs. Well, it depends how you account for it. I hope we see a coronation that is sufficiently dignified for our sovereign. This is a one-off cost. According to a poll of 4,500 Britons in mid-April, commissioned by the BBC's flagship current affairs show Panorama, 54% of people believed that the monarchy was good value for money in Britain, but a third thought the opposite. And a lack of clarity about actual royal finances, said Panorama, was feeding public doubts about that and whether the royals could really empathise with their subjects who were doing it tough. But on News Talk ZB last Monday, Andrew Dickens referred to another survey that said the £100 million a year that British taxpayers tip into the monarchy returns £1.7 billion to the UK economy. Uh, The royal family is good business for the UK. That's why when you start hearing from Green MPs in in the UK about, well, you know, the royalty's past its time, uh, you go, well, actually, I think there's a lot of business people who will say no And they're not going to get rid of it in any time just because you think it's an anachronism because there's so much money coming out of it. Possibly all true, but that £1.7 billion figure was also the estimate of a British marketing and branding company. And some of that value was in the existing brand value of the House of Windsor, they said, and much of it IP that they already own. Anyhow, to those who said that the cashed-up new king should have footed the bill for his own coronation... ZB's Andrew Dickens insisted that the monarchy's matinee on Saturday could probably pay for itself. The amount of tat that they're selling, the amount of memorabilia that they're selling, the amount of um, hotel rooms that they're filling out, the number of airfares they're doing, the number of uh, people who are, who are operating hospitality facilities that are catering for the people that have come for the coronation, it's huge. And among those beating a path to London for the coronation was Andrew Dickens' ZB colleagues, Kate Hawkesby, and her partner on the air and in life, 
Mike Hosking. Though when he got to London, Mike Hosking found that coronation fervour hadn't been quite enough to revive a suffering London CBD. There are more empty shots than there are full ones. You just need to be here a while to notice these sort of differences. I mean, we went to lunch uh, the other day at what was once one of the city's best restaurants, no longer. Uh, The prices hadn't changed. Well, they had actually. They'd gone up. But everything else had slipped. Service was not what it was. Uh, The polish isn't quite there anymore. So once again, for all the issues we face in New Zealand, and they are many and varied and some indeed very worrying, we are far from alone. Now, during the COVID close down here, Mike Hosking condemned New Zealand as a hermit kingdom while he praised the UK, among other countries, for ending lockdowns earlier and opening up their economies and their borders for things like holidays overseas. Though once in London, he told his listeners this last week. The debate now is who has handled it better. I've got little doubt that London, more broadly Britain, did it better than us, way better than us. Their debt is terrible still, but it started out worse, hence their inflation still a mess. But to suggest the world has moved on and got back to normal isn't true. Now, any politician who switched positions like that would be hauled over the coals on the Mike Hosking breakfast, you'd think, for flip-flopping. But reckons on the radio made with absolute conviction by the host in the past, it seems, can be simply reversed at will later on, with no acknowledgement necessary. Now, when it comes to the monarchy, Mike Hosking is much more emotionally invested than his colleague Andrew Dickens, judging by this wobble on the air when the news broke last year that Queen Elizabeth II had died. It's very upsetting, isn't it? I mean, it's end of an era. I don't know that I can. I don't. Just give me a couple of minutes. But according to that opinion poll aired on BBC TV's Panorama last week, not all Brits are as hopelessly devoted to the monarchy now under new management. A new poll suggests public opinion about the British royals is changing, with less than a third of 18 to 24-year-olds in the UK wanting the monarchy to continue. And it turned out that Mike Hosking had actually caught that episode of Panorama on BBC television, and he didn't like that particular take. That was the only demographic that was actually negative towards the monarchy. 25 to, 50, 40, uh, 25 to 49-year-olds, 48 favoured the um, monarchy. 50 to 64-year-olds, 67% favoured the monarchy. 65 plus is 78% favoured the monarchy. So in totality, which is how these stories should be told, the vast majority of people still favour the monarchy. But on those results concerning younger people, ZB's Mr Monarchy got his maths a bit messed up. The 18 to 24-year-olds, 32 didn't want it, 38 did. And, uh, sorry, 32 did, 38 didn't. So, in other words, a majority didn't want it anymore. What they didn't point out, or most of the coverage I read didn't point out, is 40% didn't know. It was actually 30% who said they didn't know, not 40. And while the majority of 58% overall did indeed back the retention of the monarchy in this particular poll, Mike Hosking didn't mention the trend that Panorama picked up based on a previous one. When YouGov asked the same question in July 2013, a year after the Queen's Diamond Jubilee, 75% of people polled said the monarchy should continue, and only 17% wanted an elected head of state. For young people, decline in support appears starker. In the new poll, less than a third of 18 to 24-year-olds said the monarchy should continue. And Mike Hosking also didn't mention that 45% of the people polled by Panorama said they believed King Charles III was out of touch, and only 36% said they believed he wasn't. On News Hub at 6 last Tuesday, on the other hand, they had no qualms about saying this. Monarchy popularity has hit a record low. Only three in every ten Brits consider the monarch very important. 
And there, News Hub's Lisette Raymer was talking about another survey of 6,500 UK people, part of 40 years' worth of data that's part of the British Annual Social Attitude Survey. And it also noted that the royal family usually gets a bump in support around jubilees, weddings or royal births. Though when Lisette Raymer voxpopped the people already holding down a spot in the street almost a full week out from this weekend's coronation convoy, it was no surprise that she found British devotees like this guy. Hip hip away, hip hip away, three cheers for the king and queen. Hip hip away, hip hip away. Well, here too, people revering royalty made the news this week with the coronation imminent. Plans for the big night are low key. Oh, I'd watch her, but it won't get me upset or anything like that. I'm past that business, but I'll have a cup of tea for him here. That's royal fan Barbara Larson on Morning Report on RNZ National last Tuesday. She's collected royal stuff in New Plymouth since she was a child in a house where the walls are lined with royal books and mementos. And TBNZ were certainly banking on New Zealanders wanting wall-to-wall royal coverage this past week. The state-owned broadcaster, which turned down an invitation to air the state memorial service for Queen Elizabeth II last year, began last Wednesday night on TBNZ1 with last year's Royal Variety Command performance. The Coronation Street on after that was just a coincidence. Then, on Friday, there was a King Charles special episode of The Repair Shop on TBNZ1, followed by My King Charles III, a uniquely intimate portrait of the man behind the crown, according to TBNZ. After that, King Charles III, A New Era, billed as a groundbreaking and moving documentary, including never-before-seen interviews with his former butler. And on Coronation Day itself, on Saturday, TVNZ kicked off the coverage at 10am with another big gig, the Platinum Party at the Palace. After that, a doco called Fergie and Meghan, Inconvenient Royals, and then Catherine, our Queen-in-waiting, profiling the Princess of Wales. That was then followed by Charles and the Women Who Could Have Been Queen, all about Charles's search for a bride down the years before settling on the one who's actually become Her Majesty. And at 7pm, TVNZ news hosts Melissa Stokes and Daniel Faitawa took over, joining the BBC's coverage from London later on. And for those wanting an alternative to TVNZ's Their Majesties Coronation, the TV Channel 3 offered the coronation of their majesties on Saturday night, hooking into the coverage of the BBC's rival in the UK, ITV. Though last month, TV Channel 3 show The Project did promote a genuine alternative when visiting British comedian Ross Noble declared he'd be doing his own alternative live commentary on the coronation on the night. Especially the BBC, you know, they have all these posh people and they always do this thing where nothing's happening and they'll have some and they'll just go, wonderful scenes now, wonderful <laughs> scenes, wonderful scenes, yeah, wonderful <laughs> scenes. So that's basically, you don't have to know anything at all. You just have to say, wonderful scenes now, wonderful <laughs> scenes. Now, of course, for royalty fans, these are really wonderful scenes and ones they don't get to see very often. And some know the traditions, the royal pomp and circumstance in detail, as ZB's Andrew Dickens discovered when he described the ceremonials last Monday as a bit pantomime, and especially when he mocked the Stone of Destiny from Scotland. And I saw a wonderful person who actually posted a picture of the transportation of the Stone of Scone and saying, if you ask somebody from another planet, what the on earth is happening here, they could not answer it. (laughs) They're worshipping a freaking stone. You know, I, I think Scoon, the, um... sorry. And on this and some other matters of royal tradition, Andrew Dickens was royally fact-checked by some of his own listeners. It's my heritage 
And I'm proud of the heritage. Coronations have been going on since the first recorded one of King Athelstane in 925 <laughs> AD. Yeah. The ceremony follows largely the same format. It's solemn, and the Stone of Schoon was placed under St. Edward's chair by King Edward I. And it wasn't only the older-sounding listeners who were looking forward to the coronation. Yeah, I think it's going to be cool, and I don't know why everyone's bagging it out. Like, I get it, it's expensive. However, one change to the tradition that didn't go down so well with Andrew Dickens was that invitation for us all to pledge allegiance to the new king. Chanting along with the Archbishop of Canterbury? Come on, get real. It's 2023. We're just watching this for the for the fancy vermin, uh, you know, cloak. And the, and the crowns and the jewels and the horses and the carriages and the people and the flags. Now, that'd probably be an ermine cloak, unless they're making them out of ratskins these days. But Andrew Dickens was backed up on his point about that Pledge of Allegiance by the vox-popped people of New Zealand. Why would I pledge my allegiance? I just don't feel that I owe them anything. I think it's sort of a, a old fashion. I wouldn't do that. Another piece of royal protocol was breached by our own Prime Minister just before he jetted off to the coronation when Chris Hipkins, rather than the palace, told the media he'd be meeting the king, prompting this from News Hub political editor Jenna Lynch. Chippy had a slippy, accidentally revealing today that he will be getting a meeting with the one, the only, His Majesty King Charles. Now, there was plenty more where that came from this past week until this weekend's actual coronation, but for those who'd had more than enough... There was an online solution of sorts as well. Māori artist Hamiora Bailey has developed a way to make your computer filter out news about the royal family and replace it with local and indigenous news. The plugin works by scanning web pages for keywords and visuals relating to the royal family. The royal content is then removed and replaced by articles sourced from multiple indigenous publishers. Well, one outlet where that online plugin wouldn't have come in all that handy if you wanted to unplug royal coverage was newsroom.co.nz, which had nothing in the way of coronation coverage on its main site this past week, though it does also co-produce with RNZ the daily podcast The Detail, which last Monday did devote an episode to the coronation. And the host, Sarah Robson, wrapped it up with an intriguing question for the New Zealand Woman's Weekly royal correspondent Donna Fleming. Was the coronation actually necessary? He doesn't actually officially need to have a coronation. Like you say, as soon as his mother died, he became king and he's been known as King Charles since then. But this is just sort of putting the icing on top in a way. And it is officially saying that he is the head of state, he's the head of the church. That's an important part of it. And it's just officiating, making everything official. So... It is important in that respect, but technically, no, he doesn't actually need to be crowned. And on Friday, Newsroom's political editor, Joe Moyer, said this in its weekly podcast, Rule Politics. Is it time for New Zealand to become a republic? I feel like this question has been asked so many times, and here we are talking about it again. And then, on Raw Politics, the co-editor of Newsroom, Tim Murphy, turned all prime ministerial himself, ruling out republicanism here in his lifetime. Unless... What would have to cause it will be something um, international, probably at their end, that's something either tragic, uh, and we lose a few of them, uh, and get down to someone who no-one wants in, in any part of the world as, as the, the monarch, or... Uh, something scandalous that has the same effect that, that turns off uh, the populace in Australia or here or elsewhere. 
Now, earlier, Tim Murphy had pointed out on social media that after decades of people saying that a national debate would likely follow the Queen's death, it just isn't happening. And one of those who saying this debate was due after the Queen died last year was Otago University Professor of Law Andrew Geddes. Writing for Newsroom at that time, he said that the media coverage of Queen Elizabeth's death pointed to some of the reasons for removing the sovereign as our head of state. Watching the Queen's coffins procession to an 11th century palace some 1,800 kilometres away, surrounded by pomp and ceremony harking back centuries, makes it abundantly clear this is not our monarchy. History may have bequeathed us the state of affairs, said Andrew Geddes, but retaining it is an act of choice. But eight months on, a similar malarchical spectacle has been back on our screens big time this past week, with next to nothing in the media pondering the possibility of change, save for reports of our Prime Minister saying New Zealand will, ideally and in time, become a country independent of the British Crown. Now, that in itself wasn't a change from what his predecessors as Prime Minister had said, so this week I asked Andrew Geddes, has media ambivalence about the issue and its fondness for royal spectacle taken the issue off the agenda altogether? I don't get a strong sense amongst uh, New Zealanders that we're seeing it as sort of our new king coming in. It's more, oh, isn't it funny how the British are having their king, which they in brackets incidentally means he'll transfer over to us, but, oh, that's just a sideline. So when you see the coronation, I mean, it's all the bunting is Union Jacks. Ceremonially, the the, uh, the the event is essentially based around old British traditions. You know, the the Stone of Destiny and all these weird swords that they have with the, the British tradition and so on. There's nothing that we see there that really speaks to New Zealand of today. So much of the reverence, if you want, for the monarchy is tied up with uh, the individuals concerned, and the Queen had that, and she'd earned it, and you know we become so used to her and so respected her. Now she's no longer there. It does open up the space to have the discussion if people want to have it. But that's not to say people actually really want to have the discussion at all. And it does seem at the moment uh, there isn't a great appetite for talking about the, you know, to be honest, fairly symbolic, not that practically important uh, aspects of our constitution in this way. Do you think the media aren't really interested in raising this issue now of the Republic uh, and that perhaps Tim Murphy of Newsroom is right in saying, look, this doesn't seem to be happening and New Zealand are a bit apathetic, a, a passive kind of place in terms of this issue of republicanism and if the media don't see that the public are all that bothered, they're not going to raise the issue? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is a bit of a chicken and egg question, right? You know, are people not interested because the media is not talking about it or is the media not talking about it because people aren't interested? Uh Probably both. When we look at the opinion polls, uh, it does seem that the majority of people are happy to stick with the status quo. Uh, and if there's no sort of groundswell, or if the you know the stories that are put out there that sort of dangle the you know the prospect of republicanism aren't getting the hits, aren't you know because you know the media gets to see what people are reading, it, why would the media really feel that they need to be almost preaching at people about something that they just don't care about? Uh, the other thing I think we do need to note is. To change to uh, a republic would involve some constitutional change. And, of course, once you start to tinker with one little bit of the Constitution, you start to open up much, much bigger questions, uh, much bigger questions that are a lot harder to answer. Uh, And given the uh, way in which people shy away from simple questions of co-governance around water, are people going to want to talk about that at a national level? 
Listening to the, the newsroom uh, crew, Joe Moyer, political editor, Sam Sash-Deva, a correspondent and the co-editor Tim Murphy, all talking about this. They, they raised the thing of, look at what happened with the flag referendum, you know, which uh, they described as disastrous. But for the media... That was probably a big hit, wasn't it? Could, could it? Is it not conceivable that even though New Zealanders might be, as you described it, traditionally somewhat passive and avoidant when it comes to constitutional change, that a media kind of push on this could actually be one that generates a whole lot of engagement for them? Possibly. But of course, you have to remember with the flag referendum, John Key came out and said, we're going to do it. And then once it was going to be done, then that generated the content for the media to work off. If the media had just gone out and said, hey, hey, shall we talk about changing the flag without the prime minister saying we're going to do it, would it have worked the same way? And that essentially is what would have to happen, right? So unless you've got one of the major parties coming out and saying, yep, we're going to make this an issue that we are going to act on, I don't think there's the hook there for uh, the media to get people um, biting on. A, A media campaign on this would result in pretty much the main political parties going, very interesting, but we're not ready to talk about it yet. With that response, you know, what is there really going to be to generate the kind of discussion and the interest and so on? Yeah, it might have to be something like Australia or another country making the move and, and that giving it some impetus. But uh, as Tim Murphy of Newsroom turned himself into the Prime Minister and ruled it out in his lifetime uh, as a prediction, I mean, as the constitutional expert and, and pundit who's often pulled in by the media to talk about this stuff, as I am now doing to you. Uh, Do you think it'll happen in your lifetime, or is that traditional passivity and avoidance uh, you detect the New Zealanders uh, likely to be the determining factor? How long am I living for here, Colin? How many years are you giving me? Um, It's very hard to to see, you know, what the future holds. I mean, you raised one thing that could change matters quite a lot, which is, you know, if Australia decided to act on it, at the moment, looking at the issue with the New Zealand's borders, I do think that we've got a bunch of other constitutional things that we need to get more comfortable talking about and more comfortable thinking about before we can really talk about the Republic properly. I think people are going to naturally want to try to avoid talking about the Republic, not because that's tricky and there's nothing to be done about it, more because they're worried about where it could lead. Well, Andrew, having said there, it wasn't a whole lot of coverage of this issue that uh, of, of New Zealand's future and its constitutional status uh, and head of state and so on because of the kind of tidal wave of coverage of the coronation and a spectacle. Uh, there was later in the week questions to uh, the Prime Minister about uh, Indigenous peoples of the, you know, the former empire, if I can put it that way, demanding an apology for the effects of colonisation. Tabati Māori here uh, was speaking about that in the media on Friday. It was put to the Prime Minister. Is that one area where perhaps there has been issues other than just simply what would be happening on the weekend was actually raised? Yeah, so it does draw attention to the fact that the the monarch uh, is the monarch of what effectively was the old British Empire. What was interesting, however, was that when Chris Hipkins was asked, you know, do you think the king should apologise? His response essentially was, well, that's not actually any of New Zealand's business. Uh, It's the business, in essence, of a foreign government. And New Zealand doesn't tell foreign governments what to do, which overlooks or seems to downplay the fact that, you know, the king is the king of New Zealand as well as the king of Great Britain. I think it reinforces this idea that, what we're viewing is the coronation of someone else's monarch, not really our head of state. That was Otago University Professor of Law, Andrew Geddes.
Chris Hipkins' royal protocol breach, or Chippy's Slippy, as we heard News Hub calling it earlier, would have been the last thing on the Prime Minister's mind when he returned to Earth in London on Wednesday to find out that one of his ministers had defected to another political party. That story broke at about 8.30 on Tuesday night when Wena Harawera, who's Fakata Māori's Director of News and Current Affairs, or Tahuhu Kawepurongo, reported that the defection would be announced the following morning, and that kicked off a major late-night media scramble to stand up the story elsewhere. Hayden Donnell had a look at how that unfolded, a little untidily, in this week's Midweek Media Watch on nights here on RNZ National last Wednesday. If you missed it, it's on our page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed. Well, as we now know, that when a Harawera scoop was quite correct, and while this was reported as something that no one saw coming initially, the same source, Fakata Māori's Te Ao Māori News, did report as long ago as 2020 that Te Pāti Māori might be courting Mecca Whaiteri. Now, after Fakata Māori's initial report of her defection on Tuesday, other news websites reported that report, and RNZ led its news bulletin at 10pm that night like this. The Ikaroa Rafati MP, Mecca Whaiteri, is to resign from the Labour Party to instead stand for Te Pāti Māori. RNZ understands the Māori Party is planning an announcement near Hastings tomorrow morning. Shortly after, TVNZ got it into their late bulletin after 10.30pm. My news understands the 58-year-old is expected to announce the move tomorrow in Hastings. And News Hub Late on TV Channel 3 rustled up its political editor, Jenna Lynch, to talk about the political headache awaiting the presumably oblivious Prime Minister. It is one thing for an MP to go rogue, that is bad enough, but a minister is so much worse. And the Prime Minister possibly doesn't even know about this yet. He is currently in the air on the way to the other side of the world for the King's coronation. So he's going to get one heck of a fright when he lands in London if he's not been given a heads up or unless they have Wi-Fi on that plane. Also, in a rapidly written analysis for News Hub's website, Jenna Lynch then weighed up the chances of Mecca Whaiteri taking the Ikaroa Rafiti seat away from Labour in October. But it wasn't until 4am on Wednesday that News Talk ZB squeezed the story into its news bulletins. Though, unlike others, ZB did acknowledge where the story came from. Te Ao Māori News is reporting Cabinet Minister Mecca Whaiteri will resign from Labour and stand as a candidate for the Māori Party in the upcoming election. By breakfast time on Wednesday, the imminent defection was headline news everywhere, including iwi station Radio Watea, where Labour's Māori caucus co-leader Willie Jackson had an awkward and at times inaudible interview with his former colleague at the station, Dale Husband. Um, uh, uncomfortable for you to comment about because it hasn't been confirmed, or are you OK to have a yarn about it? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Where are you going, huh? What do you want to know? <laughs> well, um, is it true? Uh, apparently, um, yeah. And soon after that, the party co-president John Tamahiri confirmed the defection with quotable comments about freeing Mecca Whaiteri from enslavement and shackles imposed by Labour. And just seconds after that, TVNZ's One News Now website published the opinions of its political editor Jessica Much Mackay that this power move was not just a massive kick in the guts for Labour, it could also be, she said, handing the kingmaker sword to Te Pāti Māori after the election. Now the question of who she should represent in Parliament until then was also unclear, or whether this constituted waka jumping or not. And that was also much debated in the media that day and the next. 
But beyond that, a more pressing concern was almost entirely overlooked by the national media. Ikaroa Rafiti includes Hawke's Bay and East Coast communities who were hammered by Cyclone Gabriel, and Mecca Faitari was the Minister of Cyclone Recovery. Now, this was a job she had inherited from another Hawke's Bay-based minister, Stuart Nash, after he was kicked out of Cabinet barely a month earlier. And judging by the local paper, the day of her defection, they really need that representation. The front page of Hawke's Bay today said that the Horticulture Growers Task Force had requested $750 million to save the region's industry, but a month later, it's yet to receive any response from the government. And the day after the defection of Mecca Whaiteri, on Thursday, the paper's editorial said the loss of the Cyclone Recovery Minister was a further knock to recovery efforts. Hawke's Bay Today's news coverage then quoted Sarah Grant of Dartmoor as saying another change in that role felt chaotic and you wonder what's going to happen next, while a Rissington farmer called Daniel Absalom had told Hawke's Bay Today farmers had had good communications with Whaiteri and she was getting things done, and this, he said, is the worst possible timing for another change. Going into winter, they and others in the region will certainly be hoping that that will be a focus for the media, and the politicians alike, along with their wargaming of the upcoming election. In a special episode of Māori politics programme and podcast Mata, produced for RNZ and TVNZ by Aotearoa Media Collective, former Te Pāti Māori MP Marama Fox credited the current party president, John Tamahiri, for engineering this political switch. I think it's a master move by JT. The timing is perfect. The um, Prime Minister's overseas, um, they're within the six months to the election, so there'll be no need for a by-election. It needed to come now if it was going to come at all. But others urged Mika Whaitari to clarify who she actually represents now as an MP. And among them was RNZ's series and podcasts executive editor Tim Watkin, who wrote that Mika Whaitari needs to show respect to voters and the parliament she's sworn to serve by cleaning up what he called this constitutional cluster that Mecca Whaiteri has created. And it turned out that this was the constitutional issue keeping Otago University's Andrew Geddes busy in the media this past week, rather than the status of our new head of state or the monarchy, as we were talking about earlier. So while Mecca Whaiteri was urged for an explanation of her actions this week, how did the media do explaining what actually happened? There's two things. One... It's the MP's fault for the way she presented it. I mean, she presented it one way in her stand-up uh, press conference, very definitively said she had quit her party and was going to now sit with the Māori party. But then it turned out she'd said something quite different to the speaker. So if there's any blame about confusion, I think it lies with the MP herself. So from that initial confused starting point, of course you're going to have you know an element of just trying to work out what's happening. And that takes time. And because the issues are somewhat complicated by a mixture of law and parliamentary procedure uh, and even the question of who gets to make the calls on these issues, that doesn't necessarily lend itself easily to, you know, a 30-second soundbite. You do have to, you know, work through it in detail. And my experience was when I was talking with journalists, they were trying to honestly find out what is going on here and we're trying to go beyond the simple has she acted in a good or bad manner mm. i mean that judgment could be made by the public that they can see what happened also there is i guess a sort of transparency issue here uh, which is also specific to this which is the nature of the mp's communication with the speaker some of which is effectively withheld um you know but clear public interest in people knowing about it and the media of course 
want, want to reveal that. Well, it's cut and dry in one sense. Um, it will not be released by the Speaker because he said it will be and there's no way you can force the Speaker to do it. She is completely free to release this and let the public see what she said and who she said it to and why she said it. Uh, that's on her. The only way she can be made to do so is by people continuing to ask her. Thank you, media. Please keep doing it. Jane Patterson, RNZ's political editor on Morning Report on Friday, uh, described what's happened here as effectively a guidebook now for wannabe defector MPs that uh, keep it under the radar and escape consequences. Do you think she's right about that? She is in one sense. Um, other MPs are now free to do what uh, Mekafaitari has done in terms of notifying the Speaker of their position and their future status. If they do it in the way she did, they can both be declared independent MPs and remain in Parliament. The one thing, however, that does still hang over it is that the political party that the MP used to represent, Labour in Mekafaitari's case, do still have the power under the party-hopping law to force the MP out if they choose to use that power. Essentially, what we've devolved the rules of parliamentary membership into is whether the party who's been left wants to keep the MP there or not. It's their choice. Yeah, so uh, there was some reports about courting of MPs, the possibility that this might happen with hindsight. However, no one really saw it coming in politics or in the media, it seems. So in the short time media had to come to get to grips with this very complicated situation, you'd give the media a pass mark, would you, in explaining what had happened to the public? I think the media was as confused as all the constitutional experts who were talking about this. I mean, I was texting and uh, emailing with people trying to work out just what's going on. And look, if we spend our time thinking about this deeply and we were confused, you can't really ask the media to do any better than us. And we did our best together. If we confused people and led people astray, we apologise. A lot of it goes back to the MP and the way she represented what she'd done, uh, and she didn't do it honestly. Andrew Geddes, Otago University Professor of Law for the second time in Media Watch this weekend. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media after the 10pm news next Wednesday in Midweek Media Watch during nights, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.